there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to build a meaningful career in the fields of social justice, criminal justice, and the law, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the director and founder of the Three Strikes Project at Stanford Law School, which has been called A Voice for the Forsaken by The Economist magazine. But before I introduce you to Michael Romano, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And please make sure to check out my weekly live streaming show on LinkedIn, where I share coronavirus-relevant career advice, interview guests live, take your questions, and feature your comments. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn so you'll know when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Romano, the director and founder of the Three Strikes and Justice Advocacy Projects at Stanford Law School. Previously, Michael was director of the Stanford Criminal Defense Clinic, and he currently teaches criminal justice policy and advanced criminal litigation practice. And he's published several scholarly and popular press articles on criminal law, sentencing policy, prisoner reentry and recidivism, and mental illness in the justice system. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom appointed Michael as chairperson of California's new criminal law and policy committee. It's called the Penal Code Revision Committee. He's also been named one of California's top lawyers, and his work has been featured in a variety of news outlets, including the New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, The Economist, and the award-winning PBS feature documentary, The Return. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am so caffeinated and ready to go. I'm ready. Awesome. Well, as we can tell our listeners, you used to live in like one of the coffee cities here in the United States in Seattle, and you used to be a barista. I just took a sip. It was my first job after college as I moved uh, to Seattle. I like to call it during the grunge years in the early 1990s. It was also before Starbucks went, I guess, worldwide. There was, I think, a couple of Starbucks stores in Seattle. And yeah, I worked at a small cafe called the Boat Street Cafe and learned how to make really good uh, cappuccinos. And I guess that's where I sort of got hooked on the whole coffee thing. So I am, I am, I'm fully into <laughs> coffee and your show. And I appreciate all of the people who, out there who pull coffee for a living because it really does make my life a lot better. And even during COVID, I probably shouldn't, but I, I do go out when I can and I feel like I need to pick me up. So 
Yes, I am on board the coffee train. <laughs> I love it. What kind of coffee, when you go to a coffee shop, what is your kind of go-to? I think a well-done Americano with not too much water. So I like a, I like a strong Americano is, is my drink. But I, I am choosy. I won't order that just at any place. I really need to be confident that the cafe is what it's doing. I hate to sound like such a coffee snob, but truly I am. And I, But I also go to Starbucks and I do that and I appreciate their app, especially in these COVID times. So I'm not too picky, but if I had my absolute choice and went to my favorite cafe, or especially if I went back to Seattle, I would get an Americano with not too much water. You and me both. And I have no problem with saying I'm a total coffee snob. I, I really <laughs> am. I really am. I am very picky about my coffee. So please don't serve me Folgers. Okay. That's all that I ask. So Michael, before we get into what you're doing at the Three Strikes Project, I thought it would be helpful for all of our young listeners to get an actual overview of what the Three Strikes in your outlaw actually is. Many of them probably weren't even born then. And how it got onto the books first in California, where you are right now, you're in San Francisco in 1994, and then nationwide a year later. Yeah. So it's hard to some of us to even remember these days, but back in the early 90s, there was an incredible amount of attention towards street crime and violence in America. And we can go debate back and forth about whether or not that was sort of a media phenomenon or really was was happening in the street. But certainly there was a lot of public attention towards it. And very tragically, in October of uh, 1993, actually, an 11-year-old girl who was literally having a sleepover in house in Petaluma, California. And those of you guys who are not from around here, this is like bucolic horse country, about an not quite an hour from San Francisco. I mean, literally, George Lucas was their neighbor. This 11-year-old girl was abducted out the window of her bedroom and eventually sexually assaulted and murdered. Her name is Polly Class. And uh, there was a nationwide manhunt for weeks, if not months, uh, when she was missing. And she was uh, eventually discovered and her murderer confessed and is now on death row in California. And from that experience and from that crime grew a whole movement towards developing three strikes across the country. It had been kind of out there as a little bit of a, I think some people thought of it as a, a wacky idea. But then when Polly's murder became such headline national news across the country, the idea really took off that if you've committed three crimes, especially three serious crimes, then you should be put away for life. And I mean, it really went from uh, an idea that was left to pretty right-wing conservative circles in the fall of 1993 to January of 1994, when Bill Clinton, who was president, obviously, at the State of the Union address, invoked Polly's name and murder and called for a federal three strikes law and for three strikes laws across the country. So it went from, you know, almost in the span of two months from being kind of a fringe idea to being adopted by democratic policy, you know, president of the United States. And then California passed its version of three strikes in March of that year. And then um, it really spread throughout the country. And now almost every state has some version 
uh, a three strikes law. They may not call it a three strikes law. Sometimes they're called habitual offender laws and things like that. But the idea is that if you committed three offenses and then you get uh, life for, for the third one. And again, there are a bunch of different technicalities about what qualifies as prior offenses and prior strikes. California is, is unique in that the third offense can be what would ordinarily be charged as a misdemeanor. So people can get end up with life sentences for crimes. And you know these are not exaggerations, but people who have shoplifted a pair of socks, stolen a bicycle from outside a, um, a convenience store kid's bicycle, shoplifted a pair of batteries, shoplifted a uh, bottle of alcohol, possession of a tiny, tiny amount of drugs. You know, the, the, the list can go on. Um, stealing a dollar and lose change from a parked car. I mean, these are all actual examples of my clients who were sentenced to life for these crimes. Now, they have had prior crimes. I don't want to pretend that isn't true, but they've served their time for those crimes. And then, you know, they get out and commit this third crime. I should also mention, mentioned, given our article, one of our most recent victories was a client who got a life sentence for stealing three cans of instant coffee. I know that you are not a fan of instant coffee. <laughs> I mean, not exaggeration Ooh, for stealing not three cans instant of, coffee. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> three cans of coffee, and he got a life sentence for that. He's out now, and he's doing extraordinarily well. His name is Dennis Barnes. I'm very proud of him. He's a uh, was a Vietnam War vet. And like so many of our clients, really struggled with mental health issues. He, in particular, had no problems with the law or school or anything, really, until he went to Vietnam. He did three terms in Vietnam and saw real you know, devastating combat and came back with you know, genuine combat-induced PTSD. This was in the 70s when that really wasn't recognized or treated very well, he became an addict and got in trouble with the law. Three strikes laws disproportionately impact people who've done low-level crimes because if you've done something very serious like rape or murder, you don't generally get the chance to get out and do it again. You go in for a very long period of time. So it's, you know, to overgeneralize our clients are drug addicted, mentally ill, and homeless, almost without exception, very significant portions of their lives. Almost many have come from traumatic backgrounds, whether it's somebody like Dennis, whose trauma was from war or just chaotic and tra traumatic uh, households. Now, this is not to excuse their conduct at all, but it, it gives some context. And I do believe people should be punished for their crimes and punished more severely if they commit repeat crimes. But life sentences for, for these crimes, I think, are unfair on their face, actually do more harm than good. They're extraordinarily expensive. In California, we have an incredible prison crowding problem. So there are lots of reasons why I think that they're unjust and unfair sentences. But that's the general backdrop. Thank you so much. And you've actually laid out in a terrific piece that was written in Rolling Stone magazine. This was published in 2013. Someone else wrote the story, but Mike is quoted in it, that it costs the state often about $50,000 a year to care for every prisoner, even more if the inmate is physically or mentally disabled. And you also noted that the typical third striker wasn't just likely to be homeless and or mentally ill, but he was also very likely to be black. And in California, blacks make up only 7% of the total population, but they make up 28% 
of the prison population and 45%, so almost one out of two, of all three strikers. So what is the Three Strikes Project, Mike? And what do you and your students at Stanford University Law School actually do? Well, first of all, thanks also for recognizing and noting the racial disparity that the Three Strikes Law exacerbates. And that is a whole complicated conversation about justice system generally and over-police neighborhoods and and whatnot. So that is another important element of the overview of of Three Strikes Law and what we do. But our project, based at Stanford Law School, and it's for folks who know a little bit about law school, it's kind of a clinical program where students work on actual cases of people who have been sentenced to life for minor crimes under California's three strikes law. And the way that I describe it sometimes to people who aren't familiar with law school, and this is actually what it's modeled after, I think people are maybe more familiar with med school, and maybe they're most familiar with the way the med school works from television dramas. But anyway, where there's young med students who get to work on cases, but attending doctors who sort of are looking over their shoulder and giving them a chance to work on real cases and sort of hands-on experiential learning is, you know, central to, to the medical profession and is now increasingly popular in law schools as well. So it's part of so like a class that you would take at Stanford and lots of schools have different types of clinical programs to get hands-on experience in other areas of law. But ours is students enroll in the class, and it's a it's a seminar on the sort of the history of criminal justice policy and three strikes in general and, three stri- and criminal justice reform. And the main work that the students do, aside from that background reading material, is that they get assigned to a case, an actual case, of somebody serving a life sentence for minor crimes, and they work up that case for us. And almost always that means uh, drafting, pleading, or a complaint, or a brief that we would file in court on one of our clients' behalf. So how many cases are your students as part of the Three Strikes Project managing at any given time? So each student gets one case to manage at a time. And that's, I mean, (laughs) they're very complicated cases. So I don't think that we want to overwhelm students with, with more than that. But it's also really actually great for our clients because they're so used to working with public defenders who, for reasons that are also quite complicated to explain, but are tremendously overworked and have hundreds of cases on their desks at any one time. And um, I think our clients really appreciate that even though that they're being represented by law students, now very capable law students at that, but the law students have only one case and it's theirs and all of their attention is given to that case. So each student gets one case. The project as a whole has about 60 cases ongoing at any one time. Some, In many of those cases, we have filed a brief and we're waiting for the other side to reply. So maybe there wouldn't be anything going on in that particular case, you know, this week or this month, or we might be waiting for a judge to reply. But we have about 60 clients going on at any one time. And then we supervise and provide technical assistance to lots of other programs, mostly throughout the state. But those aren't really our clients. But we we also do help other programs that are doing similar work. And over the last 15 years, Since you launched the Three Strikes Project, what percentage of your cases, or perhaps you even have a number, a hard number to offer, have you been able to actually get your clients out? Well, it depends on how you count, to be honest. Of the direct clients that we've directly represented, over 200 have been freed from life sentences. And I believe that that's no other organization in the country has reversed and gotten freed so many people serving life sentences. So we're very proud of that. 
those are the individual cases that you know we've been the lawyers in court and done the work for. On top of that, we've written laws and then won a big, basically, essentially a class action lawsuit that resulted in the reduction of sentences for over almost 10,000 additional people in, in jail and prison in California. Now, I don't want to say that we represented all of those people because you know many different lawyers obviously were involved in those individual cases uh, but those were laws that were you know directly written by us and and our students and that's another thing that I should have mentioned that our students do is that our students help research policy changes and help draft statutes and criminal justice reform policies that on occasion were able to get passed uh, they're not always successful but we've We've had a good bit of, of luck changing the law and helping people, not just at individual level, so one-on-one cases, as I was describing before, but also doing the broader policy work. Fantastic. So I'd like to rewind just a little bit, Mike, and go back to, I guess it would be 2005, maybe even 2004, before this project was launched. What did it take to launch the Three Strikes Project? And what made you even think about doing this? So I was clerking, which is kind of a common activity after law school. And I worked for a judge in Seattle getting my coffee. But there were two cases that came before the judge that really struck me. One was somebody who got a life sentence under California's Three Strikes Law for forgery, which, okay, might not seem forgery, you could, might imagine as being, could be a serious offense. But this, this was a, it was an uncle who forged a DMV exam for his nephew who didn't speak English. And he took the DMV exam for his nephew and he got a life sentence for that and forging a state document is a felony. And that's how he got a life sentence for that. And so that came across our desk. And then another case where somebody got a life sentence for aiding the sale of $5 worth of crack cocaine to an undercover police officer in downtown Los Angeles. And basically the police officer had come up to this guy and said, hey, do you know where I could get some crack? And the person's name was Willie Joseph. And we ended up representing Willie and getting him out of prison years later. But anyway, Willie said, I don't have any, but I know my friend over here does. And just by facilitating that introduction for $5 worth of crack, Willie got uh, a life sentence. And I saw those cases go by and the state of the law at the time in the Ninth Circuit was was very bad. And uh, there was not much that the judge could do to to address or correct these sentences. And these people didn't have lawyers and were trying to represent themselves. And failing. And at the same time, I saw how much energy, attention were going into other areas of criminal law. And for good reason, death penalty cases or cases of wrongful conviction, DNA exonerations. And I thought that, well, maybe the same kind of attention should be applied to cases like Willie Joseph. And maybe that there was a certain level of injustice that was maybe not the same as being some somebody wrongfully incarcerated, but still unjustly incarcerated for such an extraordinary amount of time for such a minor crime. And that's what really gave me inspiration and then a few good breaks. You know, luck is also very important, obviously, in career. And went to Stanford and I said, I have this idea that we should represent these people. It's not the innocence project, it's the guilty project. These people are guilty, but they shouldn't be in prison. And I had a idea or two on some technical legal strategies that might be might just work in California, really borrowed from other areas of law, the death penalty litigation in particular. 
And I think that Stanford kind of took a flyer on the idea and said, oh, this would be a good project, especially for law students, because there's no hope, there's no chance. And actually, somebody, an administrator at Stanford said to me once, they, they said, well, we, we sort of thought that this was like med students, this getting back to the med student analogy, working on cadavers, you know, maybe, maybe this is a gruesome and horrible metaphor in that the cases that we were looking at were people who'd served already 15, 20 years for these crimes and it really couldn't mess up their cases anymore. I mean, they were, they'd lost every peel, every chance they had to get. So why not throw some law students at the, at the problem? And they couldn't mess things up. And I don't think anybody gave us a lot of hope of, of success, except to train maybe some law students and some intricacies of how frustrating post-conviction litigation can be. But it turns out we did have success. I think we surprised ourselves even that we were able to win some of these cases. And then one win became two wins, became five wins, became 10, and sort of gathered a lot of momentum. And now 15 years later, we're still doing it. Fantastic. Before we really flash back to when you were in college, Mike, I want to pick up on something that you touched on just very, very briefly during our espresso shots interview. And by the way, if our listeners are interested in learning how to break into this really dynamic field, please check out show notes to see if Michael's espresso shots episode has already dropped. But you mentioned something about the prison business. And I want <laughs> I want you just, if you could, give us a very high level, quick overview of how much money is generated by whether we call it the prison business or the prison industrial system, because it really is a behemoth. Yeah. Well, I think there's two different ways to think about it. There's a, there's a private prison business that obviously gets a lot of attention. And honestly, it's not an area of expertise of mine because there isn't a ton of private prison business in California. That has to do with a very strong uh, prison guard union here in California that's kept out private prison industry. So I'm not terribly familiar with that end of the world. But prisons and jails are usually the most, if not the most, certainly one of the biggest expenditures of any state or local government. I'm in California alone, the prison budget is between 13 and $14 billion a year. That's to house and incarcerate about 100,000 people. If you do the math, that is well over $50,000 per person and way more than it costs to provide any services or college or a mental health treatment or any other type of services that we might want to give to folks. So it's, it's, it's extraordinarily expensive. And that does not count all the lawyers and prosecutors and public defenders and judges and parole officers and probation officers in the system. That's just purely on the bars and maintaining the buildings and staffing the actual prisons themselves. So it's, it's extraordinarily expensive. Now, in terms of reforming the system, obviously, especially in these times, COVID-related budget crunches. I don't think money is irrelevant. But the reason why I'm in this business is not about saving money as much as it is about saving lives and providing more justice to the system. And ultimately, I think improving public safety. And I'm happy to pay for a functioning, well-working criminal justice system, just like I'm happy to pay for a functioning, well-working education system. And I think we should. Norway, for example, is, is, is held up as one of the, the best countries doing 
criminal justice in terms of rehabilitating people, not holding people longer than they need to be, providing really excellent care and services to people who are incarcerated. But they spend twice as much money per inmate as California. So I think the financial piece of this, it is it is ginormous. I'm not saying it's small. And of course, there's a ton of waste in the system. And I don't think that we're doing it right. But I also don't think that it's an area that we should necessarily skimp on, nor should, in my opinion, criminal justice reform be driven primarily by financial concerns, but instead of concerns of uh, public safety and, and justice. And I, and I also think that that's where most voters and people walking on the street feel if you sat down with them for five minutes about this. Yeah, yeah I hope so. So let's flash back very quickly to when you were an undergrad. You went to Wesleyan University and you got a BA in philosophy. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Oh, no. And I swore up and down that I'd never be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer and my grandfather was a lawyer. And there's was no, very little interest in <laughs> okay. becoming a lawyer. So, <laughs> so no, I was really interested in philosophy at the time. I, I loved it. So... I mean, I had a fantasy about going to graduate school in philosophy and becoming a philosophy professor, but then I realized that you had to like learn ancient Greek or German and to really get to the heart of, you know, reading these texts in their original language. And it was something that I was just not up for doing. And so, no, I, I didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do really when I was undergrad. So when and, you graduated, yeah. you said you moved to Seattle and your first job was working as a barista. How did you get into journalism? Because you, I think fairly soon thereafter, became a staff writer at the Seattle Weekly. Is that right? Yeah. I guess I was always interested in, in media and newspapers. I mean, when back when they existed, newspapers and magazines. And, uh, you know, grew up uh, in New York City and New York Times and all the big national magazines were in my house and 60 minutes and this steady media news diet that was very important to me. And I started volunteering actually at a local NPR affiliate and did some of that work literally with reel-to-reel tapes and splicing with a razor blade and pasting together with tape, cutting and pasting like for real, not just a metaphor on, on your desktop computer now. And then got an internship. You know, I was lucky enough to have a family situation that if not directly supporting me, I didn't have to worry about supporting them. I know a lot of people who grow up and go to college have to worry about supporting other, not just themselves, but other family members or have incredible crippling debt. And luckily I was able to support myself modestly in Seattle, working as a barista and, um, and then volunteering at the local public radio station. And then I became an intern at Seattle Weekly, which is an alternative news weekly. Like the Village Voice, like we eventually bought and owned by the Village Voice. I don't know if even your listener or people know about the Village Voice. I hope they do. <laughs> I hope um, so. <laughs> so, but uh, and doing newspaper and sort of magazine-y type writing for them, which is something that I, I loved. And this was kind of the early mid-90s in Seattle. So you did that for, I guess, close to eight years. Is that right? Yeah, about seven or eight years. Exactly. And you didn't clearly go straight to law school. Even then, you got a master's 
in the law at Yale University. Why did you do that? Yeah, I'd like to say I went to law school almost by accident. I was, so I'd been at Seattle Weekly for several years, which I really loved. I think I was looking for um, some new challenges. I started freelancing for some national newspapers and magazines. And I applied sort of on a lark for a fellowship. This was at Yale Law School to go to Yale Law School for a year for reporter, you know, newspaper reporters to go to law school for a year. Basically, is a little bit of, of a sabbatical from being a journalist to learn about the law and then to go back to being a reporter. And so I applied for that again, a little bit on a lark. And uh, I got it. I still remember the call. So then moved from Seattle to New Haven and went to Yale Law School for a year. I really had no idea what law school was about, let alone Yale Law School, which is a really revered institution within the legal community and well-deservingly so. And I, I really fell in love with it. So I went to, to Yale Law School for a year. And then I did go back to, to journalism for a bit and actually failed. I, I tried to write a couple of big magazine articles. I got assignments. They got killed. I got very despondent about my career and my ability and how whether or not I could really succeed in the way that I wanted to as a, as a journalist. It's one thing doing it in Seattle for an alternative news weekly. It's another thing when you're sort of in New York City and in the, in the heart of it and decided to apply to go back to law school because, again, I really did enjoy it and love it so much. And uh, I also missed the West Coast, candidly. So uh, I applied to go back to law school and finish my law degree, which I did at Stanford. And that's really when I fully embraced becoming a lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer, too. Well, just to very quickly encapsulate what followed your graduation from Stanford Law School, you clerked for a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. You did that for a year. You joined the law firm Reardon and Horgan as a lawyer. And I have just two final questions for you. And these are questions I try to ask all of my guests, Michael. And the first one is, if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, you mentioned the time after you left Yale Law School and went back to journalism. I'm not sure if that's the time. Because I ask this question, not because I'm looking to embarrass my guests, and the truth is far from it. I speak very openly on the podcast and I blog about the times that I've failed in my own professional journey and the opportunities that those failures have afforded me. And my hope is that by sharing some of our personal struggles, we'll be able to empower our young listeners to recognize that we all have ups and downs, both in our personal lives, but also in our professional lives, and that often those downs can lead to new insights and wonderful new opportunities. So could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? And most importantly, Michael, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process? The lesson is always the hard part, but I'll tell the story. You know, it's not a bad story. So, right, I finished this fellowship at Yale Law School to you know, launch me into being a tremendous journalist. And I got a big assignment from Wired Magazine about DNA testing. And they flew me to London to go study and interview people at Scotland Yard and to New York to talk with medical examiners that were sort of on the cutting edge of DNA technology at the time. And then I interviewed a very popular mayor at the time, Rudy Giuliani. 
some of you may know, and really, really worked hard on this big feature magazine on what I thought was a cutting edge technology. And for a number of reasons, I think that the article wasn't nearly as good as I had thought. I just didn't feel like I had the magazine writing chops also. And, you know, this is maybe making myself feel a little bit better, but the editor who assigned the article then moved on to a different magazine in the middle of my reporting. So it got handed off to another editor who wasn't necessarily as invested in the ideas as maybe the assigning or, uh, editor. And they're spending months and months and months on this story and uh, investigation. And they said, we're going to kill it. We're not, you know, we're not going to publish it. And basically, they offered me a very modest kill fee, pay a fraction of what they would have paid had they published it. And for a freelancer, that's a really hard, it's, you know, hard emotionally that they're, you spend all this time, but also hard financially. I was living with my now wife, I guess, maybe we were engaged at the time, in a tiny studio apartment on 122nd Street and Morningside Drive in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, not far from Columbia. But I mean, our apartment was tiny. The window looked out onto an air shaft that you could almost touch the other side of the building if you opened it the window up and to see if it was what the weather was out, you had to actually like kind of stick your head out the window and look up to see what the sky was. It was a pretty hard time. And I certainly felt like a failure. I had already sort of left my home and life in Seattle and kind of made this big jump to New York City and doing the Yale program and thought I was off to you know, a great journalism career and then just felt very despondent that I that I didn't have the chops for what it would take. Luckily, along the way, I met as part of the research into the DNA stuff, a Barry Sheck, who runs the Innocence Project and did DNA exonerations and basically talked my way into a job with him and said, I'd love to volunteer for you or work for you. He eventually started paying me out of his own pocket, which I'm incredibly grateful for. You know, like I was saying before, I was fortunate enough to come from a family where I could live extraordinarily modestly and paycheck to paycheck and even rely on family support. And, you know, then gradually uh, decided and learned how much I remember I loved law school. And I was very lucky to to hook up with Barry Sheck at the Innocence Project, who was a terrific uh, mentor, and very menschy guy who ushered me along the way and encouraged me and helped me to apply, to reapply, to finish my law degree. So that was a pretty low time in some ways in New York and really not knowing what to do with my career and feeling adrift and between different careers. And, and I, again, you know, I was very lucky to connect with Barry, I suppose, in that way and that he was so kind and generous towards me. And now I'm trying to struggle with the lesson is, I mean, it's... Oh, I see it. I okay, see tell the me, lesson. Please, now you please, tell please. me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. And maybe because I have interviewed so many people, I'm seeing a connection here. And it goes to the importance of building your network and engaging with people. And then if there isn't a job readily available, if you can afford it, and I recognize that there are many people, as Michael has already said, who don't have this privilege. Volunteer. Do whatever you can to get your foot in the door. Because the worst thing that happened, or that might have happened, is that Michael would have worked for free for the Innocence Project, and Barry would have said, thank you very much, but we don't have a job. 
but look what did happen. So you need to lean into taking those risks if you can. You create your own opportunities. Well, I I think that that's very true. I'm not a big fan of free internships because of they really cater towards people who have family money to support themselves. And, you know, I should say I started volunteering for Barry like just one day a week. And so maybe you can carve out one day a week from another wise paying job to get in the door. And for those folks who might be listening who do hire interns, please pay them and pay them a way that they can at least make rent. I lived a very modest lifestyle. I don't want to say that. So, I mean, you do have to sacrifice in that way. And many of my friends were going off and, and, and making decent money and living much higher on the hog. Uh, yeah, higher on the hog. <laughs> you know, had, nice, had nicer apartments, could go out to nicer... <laughs> meals. My you know, now wife and I spent a lot of time sitting on the floor of our studio apartment eating pasta that we bought at the corner door. And it, it requires a lot of hustle and a lot of hard work and a lot of entrepreneurialism. I do feel like I need to make one shout out is that I was remembering. So my project does not typically take interns for a variety of reasons, but we did one summer. We took two interns and one of them last week or I guess two weeks ago now, became a real life member of Congress. So one of our, which makes me feel very old, one of an undergraduate intern who interned for us one summer, volunteer, maybe he got some college credit for it, I forget, but just got elected to Congress. What's his name? His name is Mondaire Jones. And he's representing, I don't know which district in New York State, but I think Westchester County. And I'm very proud of him. I'm sure his success had nothing to do with his summer internship at at Stanford, but was probably a stepping stone along the way. I hope so, at least. He's been very kind and reached out to, to us during his campaign. But in any event, I'm very proud of him. Wow. Well, congratulations to Mondaire and uh, hope he goes on to do great things during his time in Congress. Final question. If you could go back to college, Michael, back to Wesleyan and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Wow. I've come at it from two different perspectives. I loved college. I had a great time. I made incredible friends that are some of the most important people in my life to this day. I learned a ton about living independently. I learned a ton in classroom about thinking critically and in a classic kind of liberal arts educational way. And so my experience at Wesleyan was terrific in that regard. I had no career aspiration at the time. And I think I probably looked down at people who were very careerist at the time. I probably could have been a little bit more thinking forward towards my career. There's about 15 minutes where I really wanted to be a doctor. Maybe if I thought more about that, I would have applied myself more in math and biology and chemistry and biochemistry or pre-med type classes and, 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 and tried to go that route. And I'm envious of some of my friends who did that. But at the same time, I don't want to feel like I sacrifice, like I said, the relationships and the maturing and growing up that I did when I was in college. So I had to change anything. I guess maybe being a slightly more careerist, but my lack of career ambition sort of bounced me around the country. I, I went to Seattle. I, mean, I, I went to Seattle, honestly, following my college girlfriend at the time. 
And because Seattle was a really cool city and lots of interesting things were, were going on in Seattle in the 90s, not for any uh, career reasons. And, you know, a lot of things fell into place because of luck. And I guess I'll leave it in saying that I think that a lot of us who are successful think that we earned our way here to where we might be. And certainly I've worked very hard to get here, but also I've been extraordinarily lucky in so many different ways for my family, from the schools to support, to running into this person, to being able to volunteer at the NPR station, to meeting Barry Sheck, to, to you know, da 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 on and on and on. So a lot of it is luck. Maybe thinking of this as a positive way is that when you do get lucky, when something lucky does happen, you know, take take full advantage of it as possible, but recognize it as luck and then apply the hard work and gumption to make to make the most of those opportunities that might fall your way for no other reason that you happen to be at the right place at the right time. Well, I feel like I've been at the right place in the right time to have had this opportunity to speak with you and hear more about your journey and your career experiences, Michael. I want to thank you so much for making time for a drip coffee with me today and with the T4C community. I was thinking as you mentioned that for 15 minutes, you thought briefly about becoming a doctor. And honestly, I think what you are doing in your career at the Three Strikes Project is really healing our society. Well, thank you very much. I like to think that too. And so, you know, maybe there is some uh, resonance there. And I also have an extraordinary amount of respect and admiration for medical doctors, especially in in these times. And um, I still find the energy of hospitals and just being in an elevator with people in the hospital and you never know if they're, are they going to have a baby and it's the best day of their life or did they just get diagnosed from cancer and it's their worst day of their life? And maybe in some ways that's kind of like a courtroom where so much drama is happening, but I find that world extraordinarily compelling. And if luck had gone another way and happenstance, maybe I I would have been a a doctor, but thank you for the compliment. I'll take it. And um, I, I really do love my job. I'm not saying that I don't. And I know I'm very lucky to have it. So I hope I'm helpful to your listeners and I'm findable on the internet and threestrikesproject.org. And uh, so people should feel free to, to contact me if I can be of any further help or questions. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.